And uh, <clears throat> you folks who are, are guests with us today, uh, we've already said this, but I do want you to know that we do count it a, a, a distinct privilege for you to be here today. We, we see it as, as a stewardship, really, because we're living at a time when, when truth can be really, really difficult to find. And we don't, for any stretch of the imagination, and not for a minute, we don't think we've cornered the market on truth. But we do think God's cornered that market, and we believe that He's revealed His truth in the Word of God. And if we'll just leave it alone and just let God be God through His Word, we believe that God can do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or even what? We can't even imagine. Can't even think if we just let God be God. The problem is we're living at a time where people really have a difficult time letting God be God. Now, people say that they're letting God be God. But we're just living at a time to where that is a rare commodity to find. And we know that not because, you know, I'm some incredibly discerning person or that's my opinion, that's my read. That's what God told us was going to be the characteristic of the time that you and I are living in. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, our Lord writes seven letters to seven churches, and our folks can say this with me. And that's, that's, that's cool. You ought to be. But, but for our guest's sake, let, let me just pull them in real quick. He writes seven letters to seven churches, and they were real churches that really existed around 90, 95 A.D. when, when John wrote it. And Jesus was addressing real situations that were really going on in those churches. However, when you put those seven letters into the context of the whole of the book of, the, of Revelation, what you begin to find is that God is writing for you an outline form through those letters. He is writing for you the history of the church age. That was basically the time when Jesus ascended back to the Father until the time he comes in the clouds for those of us that know him at the event called the rapture. That's that period called the church age. We are living right now in the seventh and last period just before the Lord Jesus Christ does come for those of us that know him. It's outlined for us in the letter in the book of Revelation in chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, the letter written to the church of Laodicea. Now, I, I'm going through all of that because there's a term that you're going to hear me use throughout the course of this message today, and it's the term Laodicean. And when I use that, I'm talking about those of us who claim to be believers in this last period of church history. We are Laodiceans. And in that letter, what our Lord lets us know is that we are, at best, lukewarm. He, he says, now, what I really wish is I wish, you were, I wish you were either cold or hot. But the fact that you sit there in the middle, he says, it, it, it makes me want to spew you out of my mouth. And, and you know what? The, the wild thing about God is you see most people try to to find this comfortable little balanced Christian life thing you know you know you're just a little bit part of the world you know so you can relate and and yet you know not enough of it to where you're extremely sinful and and you know what God says I wish you just go one way or the other rather than straddling the fence and playing this stupid senseless game really God says Go one way or the other, but what he says is characteristic of our time is that we are, we're lukewarm. 
and we think one thing is true when actually something else is true. We think we're doing all right. And Jesus read, now this isn't my read, Jesus says we're not doing all right. And we're going we're gonna to get into that in some detail this morning, but just in, in a quick fashion, to pull you into where we are, we're looking in Revelation chapter 14 at a group of people that are unlike the Laodiceans. It's a group of people that are going to be manifest on this planet after we are out of here. It's a group of people called the 144,000. This is a group of people that's going to do it right. And one of the chief characteristics of this group of people is they know how to follow the Lamb. They know how to, how to follow the Lord. And what we've been trying to do is, is use their example for those of us who are Laodiceans, who are lukewarm, and, and think we're following when we're actually not, we're trying to learn some things from this, this group about what it means to follow. And we've gone to Mark chapter 8 and verse 34 where Jesus has given us the prerequisites for following him and what he says is that if you're going to follow me here's the deal you're going to have to deny yourself and you're going to have to take up your cross and then you can follow and we have for you can see at the top of your study sheet this is part 16 as we're trying to learn what it means I mean we're talking about the ABC's of the Christian life what we're trying to do is we're trying to learn what it means biblically to really follow the Lord. We've talked so much about this thing of denying yourself, and then over about the last month or so, we've been talking about this thing of taking up your cross. Now, last week, what, what I did is I, I took you to the, to the end of the story, and I said, when, when you have taken up your cross, and you have been crucified with Christ, like Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Here's what is going to be characteristic of your life. And, and so we, we did that just so we could begin to discern really where we are in this thing. And so we can determine whether or not we really have come to the place to where we have taken up our cross. Where, whether or not we've come to the place where we genuinely have been crucified with Christ. And what we saw is that though historically we cannot go and we cannot give names to the two thieves that were crucified on either side of Christ's cross... What we did is we saw from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 that in a practical way, when we are crucified with Christ, when we have the, the cross of Christ central in our life, there's two thieves that are going to be crucified on either side. Do you remember what they were? The first one is the world, and the other one is... Is that what you said? The other one is self. The world... On one side, remember we saw what the world was. It, it's the system of evil over which Satan is the head. It's a system that is against God. It's the system that is comprised of three things and three things only. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's, it's that system that Satan used, according to when he wrote to Timothy, he used as a snare to lure us in so that he could hold us captive, what the Bible says, at his will. Folks, the world is that system that just about damned every single one of our souls to hell. To be quite honest with you, it's that system that is holding some of you folks that are in this, this room this morning. The Bible says that all of us, before we came to Christ, we walked according to the course of this. There is a very definite, specific 
course that Satan has every person that does not know Christ as their Savior. He's just bringing them through that system so that he can keep you from ever really genuinely coming to Christ. And he makes that system look wonderful. And what he's done in the process is he's damning your soul to hell. And what Paul lets us know, what God lets us know in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 is that when the cross is central in your life, you can look to this side and what you'll find is the world, that system that we just talked about, the world is crucified to you. It no longer has that pull. It, it's, it's crucified. It is a, a bloody, lifeless, cold corpse and the other side he says and I unto the world you, you know what when you come to the place to where the cross of Jesus Christ is that central in your life yeah you're, you're gonna look at the world and the world's gonna be a dead issue to you it's gonna be crucified but you do need to understand that the world when it looks at you they're gonna want to crucify you as well the Bible says that we are the off scouring of the world when the cross has its rightful place. We're, we're just scum, yuck, off-scouring. It, it goes further and says that we are filth. And just let your imagination put it right where it's supposed to be. You are a pile of filth to the world. And that's how you know when the cross has its rightful place in our life. And because because we really do still kind of like the world, because we want the world to hold a wonderful opinion about us, you know what? When it comes to taking up our cross and giving the cross its rightful place, most of us don't want that. It's, it's spooky to us. We're afraid of it because we're afraid that our life is going to be so miserable. And what I've been trying to get you to see over the last several weeks is we talk about the power of the resurrected Christ. And we love to rejoice about that. At Easter time, we sing, and, and, and man, we, we get excited when we think about the power of God that was manifest as he wrote, raised Christ from the dead. But what we've been seeing is in order for that power to be made manifest, Christ had to do something. You know what he had to do? He had to die. And that is what caused the power of the resurrection to be made manifest. And yet here we all are. And we're really wanting abundant life. We're wanting the power of the resurrection. But we're scared to death to die. And there's no power of the resurrection until you until you die. But you see, what's characteristic of Laodiceans is we want the gain without the pain. And we want the crown without the cross. We want the reward without the suffering. The fact is, it ain't going to happen. There has to be a, a death but what I've been trying to get us to over the last several weeks is, is how, you know? And, and I think this is the, the biggest question when it comes to this whole thing of taking up your cross and, 
as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, being crucified with Christ. How do you do that? Really? I mean, you know, I, I think we'll admit it. We're dumb, okay? We, we don't get it, okay? It's not enough for us to spend 16 weeks talking about take up your cross. We're still back to, to, to letter A. And, and I'm, not, I'm not dissing you. I, I'm, I'm asking myself, how do you do this thing? I mean, we can look around us and see it must not be real easy because there aren't too many people that experience abundant living. I mean, could you name two? Of all the Christians you know and have, all, have known in your entire lifetime, could you name two that you really believe had the resurrection power of Christ on them where they, they, they had abundant life? Could you name two? Could you name one? So evidently, this thing is just not easy, as easy as just preaching about it, and all of a sudden, we all walk out, and bam, there it is. So how do you do it? And what I want to begin to do this morning is give you a Laodicean prescription for how to take up your cross and how to come to the place to where you're crucified with Christ. And here's the first one. And I'm going to say this. Now, I'm going to talk about this little gray sheet here in just a sec, so just hold on with, with that, okay? Don't let it get too far from you. But I'm going to give you this first one, and you're going to go, all right, well, I got that down. Let's go on to the next one. And because of that, we're going to take the entire time this morning just to talk about this first one. And I'm just telling you, if we can get the... What, what the, did, I, did I say? What, what did I say? Oh, that's, that's a shock to you that we're going to just take one thing today? Okay. I hate to say what you are. <clears throat> All right. Here's the first one. Get honest with God. See what I'm telling you? You're all ready to veg on me, aren't you? Get honest with God. And as we get started this morning, I, I, now listen real, real carefully to me. As we get started into this today, what I want to do from the very outset is I want to give you the opportunity to do that. I, I want to give you the opportunity in this service, at this moment, I want to give you the opportunity to get honest with God. Now, now, now don't, don't start right until I say, go, okay? It's kind of like a test. But you, you know what? On, on, on the count of three, let's all remove this at the same time. One, two, three. Some of y'all slow now. <clears throat> okay. Now, now, what I'm going to ask you to do, and the reason I put this on a separate sheet is because, you know what? I, I know that what I'm going to ask you to do is so tough that you would not be honest if you put it on your study sheet. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm, going to, I'm giving you this, and nobody's going to look on this. Nobody else is ever, in, in, unless you show them. Nobody's ever going to see this. I've, I've, I've made it disposable. You can, you can throw it out at the end of the service and all of that. But, but listen, what I want you to do today on this little gray sheet of paper. I told him to use colored paper. Anything but gray. Hey, this is a black and white church, ma'am. Anything but gray. Anything but pink, too. But what I want you to do is I want you to put on here. You can list it e either way. I want you to put the needs 
that you have in your life on this sheet of paper. And when I'm talking about needs, what, what, I'm, what I'm really asking you is this. What is in your life? What is there about your life that is not like the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? When, when I'm talking about the needs in your life, you don't need a new car. You don't need a new house. That, that's, that's not what you need. What, what you need is you need the life of Christ in your life. And so I'm asking you, what is there in your life that is not like the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? And what I want you to do, I want you to think about the things in your, things, the, the spiritual things in your life. I want you to think about the moral things. I want you to think about your thought life, the values you've come to accept. I want you to think about your lifestyle. And, and, and I want to ask you, okay, and, and this is so vital to, to the message today. I want to ask you to get just absolutely gut honest with God. And, and maybe this might, might help us. Let, let, let's say God comes down into our room today and he says this. this. For the next 30 days, it's meet your needs month. Okay? And so here's what I'm going to do. Anything that you put on this sheet of paper, any, any need that you list, I'll grant. I'll grant that request, and I'll, 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 I'll bring to fruition any need that you list. Anything that you don't list, I won't do, okay? If you write it, I'll do it. If you don't, I won't, okay? Now, if God was going to give you that, that opportunity, and you, I mean, this is the time. You're going to let God take everything out of your life that you wish he could take out of your life. What would you put? And, and young people, now, and listen, I want you all to do this, this too. You can cover your paper just like all those little smart kids do in school, you know, they, how they get all that, that thing going like this. But I want everybody that's in this room, I want everybody to just this morning try to get gut honest with God. We, we, we've taken 16 weeks to get to this place. And after 16 weeks... What has God revealed to you about you as a follower that still needs to be taken care of? All right, I'll give you the time to do it right now. You say, okay, well, what was... This? Now, just fold that thing right now and put it in your purse or... Uh, or men, you can put it in your purse or your pocket, whatever. Uh, you say, okay, what, what, was, what was that all about? Listen, I, I believe with all of my heart that if we lay out a sins, are ever going to get to the place to where we've genuinely taken up his cross and been crucified with Christ and begun to experience the resurrected power and life of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life, it is going to be just first and foremost because we got honest with God. And, and I know that that probably doesn't seem quite clear to you just, just yet how vital that thing is, but it, it, through the course of the morning, I hope to show you that. But, but now listen, and this is on your study sheet, that one of the greatest evidences of honesty in our lives is our ability to identify need. 
one of the greatest evidences of honesty in our lives is our ability to identify need. And the opposite is also true. Listen, one of the greatest evidences of deceit and dishonesty in our lives is our inability to clearly identify specific areas of need. And as we begin talking about this morning, I want you to turn, first of all, to the book of Isaiah. And I want to share with you this morning from this book two very key promises that God gives to the honest. The first one is in Isaiah chapter 44. Two promises that God gives in the book of Isaiah to the honest. Isaiah chapter 44. And look with me at verse 3. Now, this, is, this is God's promise. And so what I want you to do is I want you to look at every single word very carefully. Okay? God says, for I, what? I will. Now check it out. God didn't say, for I might. He didn't say, for I could. He didn't say, now there's a strong possibility that, you know, he said, for I will. And, and watch what he said he will do. He said, for I will pour water. Not I, I will sprinkle, not I will spray, not I will trickle, but I will pour. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry land. Not puddles, not even gully washers, but floods, floods of water. And, and water in the Bible is a picture of life. In fact, it's a picture of Jesus himself, and so that we would be certain not to miss that. Jesus just clearly spelled it out for us in John chapter 4, that he is the water of life. In John chapter 4 and verse 10, John chapter 4 and verse 14, he, he told the woman at the well that he was living water. And watch what our Lord says here in Isaiah 44 and verse 3. He says, I will, I will pour out myself, I'll pour out my life like water, like floods of waters. I'll pour out living, refreshing, reviving, renewing, resurrected life on who? Well, on, on, on those who think they've got it all together spiritually? Well, on those who hold the high offices and the places of preeminence in the church? On those who put on the wonderful display of their spirituality before everybody else in the church? No, God said the candidate for real life in me. The candidate for experiencing the, the power of resurrected life that will come pouring in like a flood is the person who's willing be honest enough to come to me and present dry ground. Those who will come and present their life like, like parched, barren, unproductive soil that is thirsting and longing for me to flood their life with the power of my life. And God says here in this verse, you get that honest with me. You get that thirsty for me. And God says, I promise you, I will pour out myself on you 
like floods of waters. We talked about this at the beginning, but do you remember what, what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17 about how we view ourselves spiritually? We look at our lives and we say, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Okay, now I asked you just a minute ago to take this little sheet of paper and to write your needs, and I want to ask you something now. How hard was it for you to identify areas of need in your life? No one's ever going to look at it, but you know what's on there. How long of a list? did you come up with? And you see, now, now listen, God says, as Laodiceans, we think that we've got it so together that we think that we don't have any need. And have need of nothing. And God says in the remainder of that verse in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, you think you've got all that you need and you don't realize that you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and naked. Does wretched, and miserable, poor, and blind, and naked reflect what you put on your sheet? <clears throat> we, we deceive ourselves. We're dishonest about ourselves. We're blinded from seeing our, our real spiritual condition, the way that God sees it. And God says here in Isaiah 44 and verse 3, I will pour resurrected life out like water on those who are thirsty. And again, one, one of the greatest evidences of thirst in a person's life is the ability to identify all that we are not before God and all that God wants us to be. You're able to identify the needs in your life. And so that's promise number one. God says here, you get honest enough with me to present your life as dry ground and, and thirst for me. And God says, I promise you, I will pour out my life on you with the power of rushing waters the rushing waters of a flood, he says. And now, let's go over to the second promise that our Lord gives here in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55, and look with me at verse 1. <clears throat> Isaiah 55, verse 1, he says... Ho! We, we, don't, we don't talk like that anymore. We'd say, stop! Halt! Okay, that's the idea here. Ho! Everyone that thirsteth. Okay, hey, all, all of y'all who are, are longing, everyone who's yearning, everyone who's craving and hungering within and thirsting. Stop, God says. Now, Let's do that. We're just going to stop here for just a second. We're going to come back here in just a minute, but would you go over to the, the Gospel of Matthew for just a second? Matthew chapter 5. And I want to show you something that Jesus showed us in the Sermon on the Mount, the first sermon that he 
ever preached on this planet. Most of you are familiar with at least the, the introduction of his sermon because Jesus gave in the introduction what we call the, the what? The Beatitudes. Okay, and if you need to know how to spell it, it's, it's just down on the next one there, just one T there. The Beatitudes, and you know, the Beatitudes are the, the blessed be the whatevers, you know what I'm saying? Okay, that's, that's what it's called, the Beatitudes. And, and just for all of you folks who are real dialed in and you know about the Gospel of Matthew, I, I do want to remind you, I, I understand the doctrinal application of what he's talking about here to the Jews and, and all that, but what I'm wanting us to look at this morning is the practical application or the, the devotional application of what he's saying here to us. And most people, when they, they come to, to verses you know, 3 and, and following, right on down through verse 12, most people see the, the Beatitudes as just these little standalone, you know, almost like a little proverb, individual. They just kind of stand alone by themselves, and, but, but they're not. These statements, they're all connected, and they're all connected in a progression. They're all in the exact order. I mean, you, you could not reverse the order or just kind of shuffle them around and, and, and put them out there and get the same meaning that you, you get with the order that they're in. They're, they're, they're connected. You, you won't have the seventh without having the first six. You won't have the fourth without having the first three. And I want you to look at the fourth beatitude that Jesus lists for us here in verse 6. He says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know, for, for all of us that are in this room this morning that have genuinely been born again, there was a time in our lives, and for most of us, it was when we were, we were brand new Christians, just babes in Christ, but there was a time when we had down in our souls, do you remember this? We had an insatiable hunger and, and thirst for spiritual things. We, we had a longing. We, we had a craving that was deep down in the very depths of our, our being for for right living, for righteousness. We, we had this craving, this longing for fellowship with God, for the, for the Word of God, for, for holiness and, and purity in our life. We, we had a craving to be used of God and to do the will of God. And we hungered for it. We longed for it. We, we thirsted for it. And you, and you know why? You, you know why that was true? Now listen, you know, you know why some people hunger and thirst after righteousness and others don't? Listen now, hungering and thirsting for righteousness comes after the first three beatitudes are a reality in your life. And without the first three, you can't get to the fourth. Without those first three, you'll never come to the place to where you hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so let's look at what they are. The first one's in verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit you know who they are the humble the honest the broken the, the transparent the real now listen that's the beginning place of salvation in a lost person just seeing your need and being honest about your need and some of you are in, in this room this morning and, and that's where you are you, you've never come to Jesus Christ and had him remove your sin 
And the first step is coming to the place of being broken in spirit, just being honest with God about your need. But now listen, it's not only the beginning place of salvation for lost people, it's also the beginning place of spiritual growth in the life of a believer. Being poor in spirit. And then next he says in verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn. Okay, so now watch the connection here. Recognizing that you are poor in spirit. In, in other words, when you come to the place spiritually that you realize that you have absolutely nothing to offer God, and you recognize that you are just totally and completely spiritually bankrupt before God and you see your spiritual condition and your need as it really is and you and you you see how far from the glory of God you've fallen the thing that is just bound to happen is once you see that you begin to mourn your condition you'll, you'll be what James described in James chapter 1 or in James chapter 4 and verse 9 he says you'll be afflicted and mourn and weep your laughter will be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness so I, I see my condition and I'm humbled I'm honest before God about it and seeing it for the way that it really is I begin to mourn that condition and then Jesus says in verse 5 that you will be meek realizing your condition and feeling the grief of it in your soul you're brought to a place where your mouth is stopped you're brought to a place in your life that you see you cease trusting your works and the ability of your flesh to do anything whatsoever to bring you to God or to bring you closer to God you're, you're brought to a place of silence and stillness before God your mouth is shut your busyness your, your flesh is, is stopped you're, you're brought to a place of meekness and this is what James was talking about when he said Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. And then when you come to that place, then, then, and only then comes verse 6, then you come to the fourth beatitude, then you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hungering and thirsting for God and His righteousness flows automatically out of a, out of a broken spirit. It flows automatically out of a life that is honest and transparent before God and views life and, and ourselves from God's vantage point. And when we do that, we see the need of our life and we begin to thirst in our souls for a righteousness that is outside of ourselves, outside of our flesh, and is found only in Him. Do, do you see the connection? Are you, are you tracking with that? Okay, now, now with that in mind, I want you to go back to Isaiah 55. And, and let's plug that into our thinking when he says in verse 1, Ho, everyone that thirsteth. Okay, now you know who the thirsty are now. And you know how they got that way. They got there from being broken in spirit and mourning and becoming meek before God. And he says, okay, now all of you that are at that place... Come ye to the water. Here it is, that, that water that we talked about back in four, chapter 44 and verse 3. Come to the water. He says, come, come ye to life. Come to me. And, and watch what he says here. 
And he that hath no money, come ye, buy. How do you buy when you got no money? Buy and eat, yea, come. Buy wine and milk without money and, and without price. You say, how, how, can I, how can I quench the hunger and thirst of my soul with God's provision and God's riches and God's resources if I don't, if I don't have any money? I mean, how will I pay for it? You know what this verse says? You purchase them by just being thirsty. That, that's all God's looking for. You purchase them by acknowledging that in and of yourself you have no spiritual resources to, to pay for them. You, you, you come to a, a place to where you are just honest before God. You come to a place of poverty of spirit. You come in emptiness. You, you come simply presenting to Him dry and, and thirsty ground, the, the dry and thirsty ground of your soul. And when you come like that, listen, that purchases your spiritual meal ticket. That's how. And you know why it does? Because the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit is in the sight of God an ornament of great price. It's your meal ticket. It's how you get to buy milk, wine, the resources of God, the life of God. It's just coming to the place to where you say, I don't have anything to offer you, God. I'm bankrupt. I'm just transparent before you. Instead of trying to continue on in that Laodicean, smug, got it all together, trying to pretend, trying to to give a better impression of ourselves and is honestly true and acting more spiritual than we really are. You know what God's waiting for, y'all? He's just looking for a group of people somewhere in Laodicea who get honest enough to admit, I don't have it all together. And I'm not as spiritual as I want you to think that I am. And I am in spiritual poverty and I desperately need a fresh touch of God. I need His grace and His mercy in my heart, in my life. And listen, when we'll do that, when we'll simply get honest with God, what we're going to find is that we are at the beginning place of experiencing the abundant life that is born out of our crucifixion with Christ. Because when we will just simply get honest before God about our condition, you know what He'll do? He exchanges our poverty, as it says in verse 1, for His riches. He exchanges the emptiness in our life as we pour our life out before Him. And what He does is He pours out the fullness of His life in that empty vessel. But until you get empty, until you get dry and present yourself as dry ground before God and you thirst until you come to the place of just being honest. It'll never happen. And, and I want you to know something. You know, that, that sounds, it sounds real simple, doesn't it? But for Laodiceans, folks, it just ain't. We, we have a terrible time being honest about ourselves and being honest about the needs that we have. 
That's what God was telling us in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. We look at our lives and we see one thing. God looks at our lives and he sees something totally different. You know why? Because we have a tremendous ability to lie to ourselves and not be honest with ourselves. And you know what? We've talked about this over and over and over in the past 15 weeks or so in 2nd Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 it says that it's not our, our problem is not that we like ourselves it's not that we're real fond of ourselves it's not that we've got this unusual attraction for ourselves our problem is that we love ourselves and the Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of and now listen love covering a multitude of sins works great when we're talking about loving each other you know what? When I love you, man, it, it covers a lot of your sins. But listen, it's a whole different thing when you're talking about loving yourself because love covers a multitude of sins. Because I love myself, I'm blinded to the sin in my life. Do you see that? I, I, I'm, I, I'm blind to what God knows is true and what God sees is true. You know, I remember the first time that somebody challenged me to do what we did in here today. and Just, you know, without any forethought whatsoever, you just come in and you just begin to list the needs. And I remember the first time I was challenged to do this. I'd been in the ministry for about 10 years or so, and, you know, I was this street urchin from the city of Miami that didn't know jack squat about anything when I came in. And because of it, I was broken in spirit and mourning and meek before God and hungered for God and thirsted for God. I got in the ministry and I learned how to talk and I learned how to wear my hair to where it was acceptable to everybody and I learned to know, know what clothes to wear and when to say amen, where to be at the, the, the right place the right time and all that kind of a deal and had it had it all together man and sat down to, to write these needs and found myself struggling to come up with maybe more than one or two things and I was just so together that when I did begin to think of other things to add to the list I, I began to justify why it really wasn't a, a need and I've since learned the principle, y'all. Listen. The shorter your list of needs, the harder to identify your need, the more filled with pride you are. The more blinded you are to the reality of who you are. And the further from God you're actually living. The easier to identify your need, the longer your list, the more honest you are, the more humble you are, and the closer to God you're actually living. You say, well, where are you coming from with that? Well, turn to Isaiah chapter 6 for just a sec. And Isaiah 6 is certainly a, a very familiar passage for most of you. But, but I, the reason I'm bringing you to the, this passage is, is Isaiah comes to the place to where a good man gets honest with God 
about his condition. And I want you to see how this this whole thing shakes down. Look at verse 1. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. And I want you to see right from the get-go, folks, that being honest with God doesn't begin with seeing yourself and seeing your sin the way that God sees that it is. Listen, it begins with seeing God for who He is. You see, real honesty can't happen with a distorted view of God. You've got to see Him for who He is. And Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And check this out. Watch how He saw Him. High and lifted up and His train filled the the temple. I mean, He saw the Lord for who He was, folks, for who He is. And, And you know the story. As the seraphims covered their face and their feet with two sets of wings... With the other, it says that they flew, hovering over the throne of God and in the presence of God. Here is Isaiah seeing God for who He is in all of His holiness, in all of His righteousnesses, as one cries to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And here is Isaiah, and he sees Him in all of His majesty, in all of His power, in all of His might, in all of His splendor, in all of His glory. And when Isaiah saw it, he was disintegrated. He says, Woe is me, for I am I'm undone. In seeing God for who He is, Isaiah saw himself in comparison. See, our problem in Laodicea is that we have a little God and a big man. And as a result, we have an inflated opinion of ourselves and a deflated opinion about God. And the result is, folks, we're so filled with ourselves, we're so filled with pride, we can't see sin for what God calls it. Listen, honesty begins in seeing God and when you see God you see yourself and when you see yourself you see your sin you see your condition before God and watch what Isaiah does he cries out oh God woe is me for I am undone and again I want you to think about who this is this is Isaiah y'all this isn't some low life we're talking about here this isn't some moral scumbag as we would say This isn't some street urchin from the city of Miami. No, this is Isaiah, the prophet of God. This is Isaiah, the the choice servant of God. And he says, oh God, in your presence, I feel like I'm I'm coming undone. I feel like I'm literally falling apart. I feel like I'm disintegrating. And he immediately begins to confess his sin. You know why? Why? Because he saw it. He didn't see it before. He would have confessed it. But he saw God. And he saw himself. He saw his sin and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. And he confesses his sin before God. And when he does... God dispatches one of the seraphims to take one of the burning coals off of the altar to touch Isaiah's lips, symbolizing the purification of the fire of God and in cleansing Isaiah's sin. And watch what happens next. 
Okay, but now, now let's, don't, don't miss the progression of what's going on. Isaiah sees God for who he is, and as a result, he sees himself for who he is, and he's mortified. He, he sees his sin, and he begins confessing his sin, and then God removes his sin, and then Isaiah, clean, pure, honest, before God, gets so close to the heart of God in verse 8 that he actually overhears God speaking. What God said is true of Laodicea. He says, you guys have got so much going, so much flesh operating, so much noise that you don't even know my presence isn't there. He says, I'm on the outside. And he says, listen, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will hear my voice and just invite me in, I'll, I'll come in and I'll sup with him. You know what our problem is? Flesh is far too busy in Laodicea for us to hear the voice of God. That sin gets down in our ears and it, it clogs our hearing. It, you know what? It's what James talked about. The, the superfluity of naughtiness. Do you remember that? He, he talked about receiving with meekness the engrafted word. And our problem is that we've got this superfluity of naughtiness that's keeping us from hearing the word of God. The superfluity of naughtiness. You know what? It, it, the, the word was used in secular the secular world to talk about that yuck that wax that gets down in the ears we don't hear him knocking because sin has gotten down into our life and it's not only blinded us but it's it's deafened us and Isaiah confesses his sin and he overhears God talking. I'm asking you, listen, have you ever gotten that close to God? Maybe we could ask it this way. Have you ever gotten that honest with God? So honest with him that there was a... Where's my little gray sheet? That little list there? Have you ever gotten so honest with God that you have had a complete confession of sin so that once that sin was removed you were so drawn to the heart of God and your, your spiritual hearing was so free from any of that yuck that gets down in and, and clogs our hearing that, that clear resonant voice of God as he looks down into our world and he, God looks and he sees that the countless multitudes on this planet that are without Christ. And listen, His voice is constantly calling out, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Could, could I ask you folks, listen, in your spirit, have you ever heard God ask that? Now, I know that you know that He asked. I mean, he was asking in Isaiah's day, 
He was asking at the time of Paul. He was asking through the Philadelphian church period. And listen, he's still asking in Laodicea, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I know that you know that he asked that, but have you ever so heard, like Isaiah did, have you ever so heard God ask that question that you felt that you had to answer him? Isaiah is, is so close at this point to God to where it's not that God's asking some rhetorical question. To lay out a sea, y'all, that's a rhetorical question to us. God's just up in heaven going, whom shall ascend and who shall go for us? And we never get to the place to where sin is so removed, so we're so close to where we feel like that you've got to answer him. And in Isaiah's life, after the process of seeing God, seeing himself, seeing his sin, getting a new conviction of sin, and then a new, new cleansing from sin, and a new change of character and heart and, and life, you know what he does? He receives a new call on his life. But you know what? It, it really it, it wasn't a, a new call. Because again, God's constantly looking down onto this planet and asking the question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? It's just that Isaiah, through his honesty before God, had moved himself into the right place to be able to hear God and to be used of God. So that it was as if this was a brand new call to Isaiah. And after hearing the voice of the holy, omnipotent God... As he cries out, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah was absolutely compelled to respond. He says, hey, God, over here, are you looking at me? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, me, I'll go for you. You know, it, it, it's just so wild to me. I, I'm, I'm, sometimes I feel old and sometimes I feel young. I've been in, in the ministry a little better than 20 years now. And you know what? I spent the first, I spent the first half of my ministry trying to get people to hear God ask that question. And man, I would be preaching on the, the need of the world to hear the gospel, and you know, Romans, how shall they hear without a preacher? And and you know, how committed to the Lord and the, the loss we need to be, and how the Lord's commissioned all of us to to, to do this thing, and. And you know what? After 10 years, you could count on one hand the people that really ever heard God ask that question to where they felt like they had to answer. And you know what? Really, one hand is a stretch. You would have had a few fingers left over. But it's been kind of wild. In the last 10 years or so, since we got our book back, we've been preaching about sin. And we've been preaching about cleansing and brokenness, and surrender, and death. And it, because of God's Word, nothing certainly that, that, that I did, but at last count around here, there's at least a hundred of you that have felt like you heard God ask that question to where you were compelled to respond. And you see, that's what happens when people are broken and cleansed 
and surrender. You move so close to the heart of God that you, you hear Him and you love what He loves and you hate what He hates and you go for Him. And, and let me be very quick to add that that certainly does not mean that every person who ever sees the Lord for who He is and sees Himself for who they are and confesses their sin and is cleansed and broken and surrendered and all that is going to go into vocational ministry. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But I will just say this. If you ever see God for who He is, and you see yourself for who you are, you see your condition, you begin to get honest with God about that, and you make a complete confession of sin, it does mean that you will go for Him to accomplish His mission, whether it's vocational or not, every single day in whatever capacity that He would choose, because you're compelled to respond to God because you hear Him as He asks that question, and you see the world the way that He does. So let's make sure that we don't make this thing of taking up our cross and being crucified with Christ. Let's make sure that we don't make this thing some mystical, ethereal, far distant thing. Listen, it begins with the simplicity of just being honest with God. And let me just give you one other example real quick of what it really means to be honest with God. As you're certainly aware, Paul was one of the most unbelievable men of God who have ever walked this, this planet. I mean, if you really just start thinking about all of the, the, the things that God used this guy to do and be a part of, I mean, in the last 6,000 years of human history... There have been a lot, of, a lot of guys that God's used, but I'll just tell you, you just step back from it and look at it, and you'd have to put Paul in the top one or two in 6,000 years of human history of, of, of the people that God's used. I mean, here's a guy that had three personal visions of the Lord, the first on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, then in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, then he, he was caught up into the third heaven. He said to, to see things and experience things and hear things that that he wasn't even permitted to ever share with anybody. In fact, he didn't even tell anybody that he had the experience until 14 years after the thing happened. I mean, this is a guy that was just unbelievably privileged. I mean, you can just imagine how, how Paul must have, have felt because, I mean, he wasn't a clueless guy when it came to the Scriptures. I mean, this is a guy that would have understood his place and he would have understood that there haven't been too many people that have ever in the course of human history that experienced the things that he was able to experience. He knew them. And yet you know what his response in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9 was? After all that, you know what his response was? Check this out, y'all. He said, I am the least I, and let me ask you, where is that kind of attitude in Christianity today? Where is that kind of honesty? Why, why is it that when, when people today get, quote-unquote, you know, grown spiritually and, and, and they're used of God in various capacities and, and they can see God at work in their life, why is it in our day... When those things start happening in us, we get comfortable. We start feeling pretty good about ourselves and thinking that, you know, we're something pretty special to God. Paul 
with all that he experienced, said, I am the least. Let me ask you something. Can you get any lower than the least? Can you? You know what the answer is? In the spiritual realm, it depends. It depends on whether you grow any more spiritual. Paul did. Paul continued to grow in his walk with God. Paul continued to be mightily used of God. I mean, he's reaching people and he's planting churches and he's being used of God to pen the Word of God. And you know what he said? Listen now. You know what he said in the middle part of his ministry in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8? Imagine this. Paul says, I am less than the least. Let me ask you, can you get any lower than less than the least? And now you know what the answer is, right? It depends. It depends on whether you continue to grow spiritually or not. And Paul did. He grew mightier and mightier with God, getting closer and closer to the heart of God as he cried out that I may know Him and knowing Him more and more intimately and being used of God to win thousands and thousands of people to Christ and to plant churches to where uh, reproduction is just taking place everywhere. By the time it's all said and done, God had inspired him to write over half of the New Testament. And here is this absolutely incredible man of God, and he comes down to the close of his life, and this is what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. I am the chief of sinners. You know what? The, the, now listen real carefully. And please don't, don't, don't pack up, jot down anything that you can that's significant. Listen to this, folks. The further Paul went with God, the more Paul saw God and understood God and was used of God. Quite unlike us, the more honest with God he became, the less he saw of the sins of others, and the more he saw of his own sin, the less he thought of himself. Let me ask you. Is that the kind of spiritual growth that you've experienced? Is what Paul experienced a, a, a pattern and a picture of, of the spiritual growth of your life? If we, were to, if we were to take out the little gray sheet that we filled out at the beginning, would you have the attitude on your gray sheet, I'm the least? I'm less than the least. I'm the chief of sinners. And what I'm trying to get you to see, folks, is the beginning place for us Laodiceans to take up our cross and be crucified with Christ. In light of what God says is true about us, the beginning place is just coming to the place of honesty seeing ourselves as God sees us and knows that we really are and getting honest about it.
Because listen, when we get honest, we begin to thirst. And you remember what the promise of God was? If you'll just present your life as dry ground and you'll thirst, I promise you, God says, I will pour out my life upon you like floods of waters. And though you don't have any money, and he says, you know what? You couldn't use money because this is without price, but the price of admission to get wine and milk, the life of God in you, the power of the Spirit of God on your life is just being thirsty. But until you get honest with God, you won't be thirsty. And what I fear. You know, you know we, we can go back through the years. We do this every once in a while. And we'll talk about the pile of stones back here of God at work in our, our church and the things he taught us here. And we'll go back and we'll say, remember what he taught us here. And we call these the landmarks in our church. And you guys that have been around here for a long time, you, you, you know all about that. And I'm telling you, we can look back over our shoulder and see that God has been mightily at work in this church. And the, the, the open doors and things that God has is, is, is opened for us, but I believe with all of my heart that we're sitting at a, at a place right now where God's wanting to build another pile of stones. And, and you know what? This, this pile of stones God has been trying to build for several years and this is the most difficult one that we've, we've ever tried to deal with. We, we've come through the book of Joshua. And I don't know if you remember. I don't know if you remember how that whole thing got started. I, I came here on New Year's. And we, we started talking about, I started telling you about some struggles that I was going through in my own, own life. This was during the church history days. And just, I, I don't have time to go into all of that again. But just talking about you know what, guys? There's, there's life on the other side of everything that we've got going and all the wonderful working of God. There's, there's still more. And, and, and you know what? We're still at, at this place to where the flesh has done all that the flesh can do. And God has accommodated our fleshliness as long as I think He's wanting to accommodate it. And now He's saying, listen, it's time. If you're going to continue on with me, it's time that you die. Flesh is crucified. And the power of resurrected life comes on you. But guys, it ain't going to happen until we can just come to the point of being honest with God about our need. Now, we took out that little gray thing at the beginning. And in light of everything we've talked about today, I, I don't know. I don't know what you feel about what you did there. And you know what? I really don't care. But boy, what, I, what I'm very concerned about is that we don't walk out of here today with God just trying to pound us on just being honest about our condition. And for that 
and this to have just been another service where we get preached to because you know what you guys are a unique group of people you like to be preached to and you like it hard and we've grown to expect that haven't we we're going to go in there and get ourselves worn out just to continue until next week so we can come in and get worn out again wouldn't you like to just come here and be all the way through it yes amen amen I understand what you're talking in all of your humility, being able to say, God is at work in my life, and yet at the same time, I am the least. I'm, in fact, I'm less than the least. But in fact, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners. <clears throat> and if you're here today without Christ, okay, now Christians don't flake out. Talk to God. Okay, you know what I'm going to say to folks that are here today that don't know Christ. You know, some of you today, as I've been preaching, though I've been preaching to, to people who know God, you know what, I, I know this because it's God's book, and, and God does the supernatural when that book is being proclaimed. I know that what God has done in some of you, is he's tried to show you today your need. And some of you today been honest with God. And you see that today you are poor in spirit. And you've even in this service begun to mourn that. And now you're not thinking in terms of, I'm, I'm religious, I, I, I pray, I, I'm good. No, with meekness, you've stopped your mouth and you've stilled your life and you hunger for a righteousness that is outside of yourself. And if that's where you are today, I want you to know that your Lord that bought you with his blood will remove your sin and impart to you his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And if you've been brought to a place today where you're hungering and thirsting for Christ as your Savior, for a righteousness that is outside of you, our pastors are going to be on either side of the front of this, this, this room this morning. And we invite you today to come to the water of life and let him pour out on you rivers of living water. He wants to do that. And we invite you to come if he's speaking to you. Now, Christians, will you get honest with God? And I want to ask you this week, I want to ask you to do that. I, I, we're, we're turning a corner right now. We're on the how-to. And we're going we're gonna to be done with this, this thing, believe it or not. You know what? I really don't want us to get on with it until, until we understand I'm carrying my cross and I'm crucified with Christ. But I want to ask you, homework assignment this week, would you? Take this week to just get honest with God. You say, well, how will I know if I get there? You will become thirsty. And then we'll come in next Sunday morning and we'll be ready to hear the second thing that it's going to take for us to come to this key, vital place in our life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would transcend the, the human element 
right now and all of my inability to be able to communicate the, the, the truth that you're wanting to, to say to this group of people today, Lord, please help me and my brothers and sisters to be honest with you I I feel like this was such a, a, a basic little message today. No depth whatsoever to it. And yet, Lord, I'm, I'm praying that we would just apply this simple principle that you'd help us to be so honest with you that we will confess our sins and yearn for you and long for you and thirst for you like dry ground thirst for for water oh lord we do believe you that you will pour out floods of water on that dry ground and help us to experience resurrected life and power in our life and lord we want this not for ourselves but we want this because this is what you called us to this is the essence of the Christian life, not something for super spiritual people, just the basics. This is what you desire for all of us. So Lord, just help us not to bypass this first one. And I pray that lost people in this room this morning will get honest enough with you to humble themselves and come to you at your cross and seek the forgiveness that is found in Christ alone. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.